Part two, chapter six of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part two, chapter six. The next day, Sunday, I have always called in my mind Nina's day and so i propose to deal with it here describing it as far as possible from her point of view and placing her in the centre of the picture the great fact about nina at the end when everything has been said must always be her youth that russian youthfulness is something that no western people can ever know because no western people are accustomed from their very babyhood to bathe in an atmosphere that deals only with ideas in no russian family is the attempt to prevent children from knowing what life really is maintained for long the spontaneous impetuosity of the parents breaks it down nevertheless the russian boy and girl when they come to the awkward age have not the least idea of what life really is dear me no they possess simply a bundle of incoherent ideas untested ill-digested but a wonderful basis for incessant conversation experience comes of course and for the most part it is unhappy experience life is a tragedy to every russian simply because the daily round is forgotten by him in his pursuit of an ultimate meaning we in the west have learned to despise ultimate meanings as unpractical and rather priggish things nina had thought so much and tested so little she loved so vehemently that her betrayal was the more inevitable. For instance, she did not love Boris Grogoff in the least, but he was in some way connected with the idea of freedom. She was, I am afraid, beginning to love Lawrence desperately, the first love of her life, and he too was connected with the idea of freedom, because he was English. We English do not understand sufficiently how the Russians love us, for our easy victory over tyranny, and despise us for the small use we have made of our victory. And then, after all, there is something to be said for tyranny, too. But Nina did not see why she should not capture Lawrence. She felt her vitality, her health, her dominant will beat so strongly within her that it seemed to her that nothing could stop her. She loved him for his strength, his silence, his good nature, yes, and his stupidity. This last gave her a sense of power over him, and of motherly tenderness too. She loved his stiff and halting Russian. It was as though he were but ten years old. I was convinced, too, that she did not consider that she was doing any wrong to Vera. In the first place, she was not as yet really sure that Vera cared for him. Vera, who had been to her always a mother rather than a sister, seemed an infinite age. It was ridiculous that Vera should fall in love, Vera so stately and stern, and removed from passion. Those days were over for Vera, and with her strong sense of duty and the fitness of things, she would realize that. Moreover, Nina could not believe that Lawrence cared for Vera. Vera was not the figure to be loved in that way. Vera's romance had been with Markovitch years and years ago, 
and now whenever nina looked at markovitch it made it at once impossible to imagine vera in any new romantic situation then had come the night of the birthday party and suspicion had at once flamed up again she was torn that night and for days afterwards with a raging jealousy she hated vera she hated lawrence she hated herself then again her mood had changed it was after all natural that he should have gone to protect vera she was his hostess he was english and did not know how trivial a russian scene of temper was he had meant nothing and poor vera touched that at her matronly age anyone should show her attention had looked at him gratefully that was all she loved vera she would not hurt her with such ridiculous suspicions and on that Friday evening, when Semyonov had come to see me, she had been her old self again, behaving to Vera with all the tenderness and charm and affection that were her most delightful gifts. On this Sunday morning she was reassured. She was gay and happy and pleased with the whole world. The excitement of the disturbances of the last two days provided an emotional background, not too thrilling to be painful, because, after all, these riots would, as usual, come to nothing. But it was pleasant to feel that the world was buzzing, and that without paying a penny one might see a real cinematograph show, simply by walking down the Nevsky. I do not know, of course, what exactly happened that morning, until Semyonov came in, but I can see the Markovitch family, like ten thousand other Petrograd families, assembling somewhere about eleven o'clock round the samovar, all in various stages of undress, all sleepy and pale-faced, and a little befogged, as all good Russians are, when, through the exigencies of sleep, they've been compelled to allow their ideas to escape from them for a considerable period. They discussed, of course, the disturbances, and I can imagine Markovitch portentously announcing that it was all over, he had the best of reasons for knowing. As he once explained to me, he was at his worst on Sunday, because he was then so inevitably reminded of his lost youth. It's a gloomy day, Ivan Andreevich, for all those who have not quite done what they expected. The bells ring, and you feel that they ought to mean something to you, but of course one's gone past all that. But it's a pity. Nina's only thought that morning was that Lawrence was coming in the afternoon to take her for a walk. She had arranged it all. After a very evident hint from her, he had suggested it. Vera had refused, because some aunts were coming to call, and finally it had been arranged that after the walk Lawrence should bring Nina home, stay to half-past six dinner, and that then they should all go to the French theatre. I also was asked to dinner and the theatre. Nina was sure that something must happen that afternoon. It would be a crisis. She felt within her such vitality, such power, such domination, that she believed that to-day she could command anything. She was, poor child, supremely confident, and that not through conceit or vanity, but simply because she was a fatalist, and believed that destiny had brought Lawrence to her feet. It was the final proof of her youth that she saw the whole universe working to fulfill her desire. The other proof of her youth was that she began, for the first time, to suffer desperately. 
the most casual mention of Lawrence's name would make her heart beat furiously, suffocating her, her throat dry, her cheeks hot, her hands cold. Then, as the minute of his arrival approached, she would sit as though she were the centre of a leaping fire that, gradually, inch by inch, was approaching nearer to her, the flames staring like little eyes on the watch, the heat advancing and receding in waves like hands. She hoped that no one would notice her agitation. She talked nonsense to whomsoever was near to her, with little nervous laughs. She seemed to herself to be terribly unreal, with a fierce, hostile creature inside her, who took her heart in his hot hands and pressed it, laughing at her. And then the misery. That little episode at the circus, of which I had been a witness, was only the first of many dreadful ventures. She confessed to me afterwards that she did not herself know what she was doing, and the final result of these adventures was to encourage her, because he had not repelled her. He must have noticed, she thought, the times when her hand had touched his, when his mouth had been so close to hers that their very thoughts had mingled, when she had felt the stuff of his coat, and even for an instant stroked it. He must have noticed these things, and still he had never rebuffed her. He was always so kind to her. She fancied that his voice had a special note of tenderness in it when he spoke to her and when she looked at his ugly, quiet, solid face, she could not believe that they were not meant for one another. He must want her, her gaiety, happiness, youth. It would be wrong for him not to. There could be no girls in that stupid, practical, far-away England who would be the wife to him that she would be. Then the cursed misery of that waiting— they could hear in their sitting-room the steps coming up the stone stairs outside their flat, and every step seemed to be his. Ah, he had come earlier than he had fixed. Vera had stupidly forgotten, perhaps, or he had found waiting any longer impossible. Yes, surely that was his footfall. She knew it so well. There, now he was turning towards the door. There was a pause. Soon there would be the tinkle of the bell. No, he had mounted higher. It was not Lawrence, only some stupid, ridiculous creature who was impertinently daring to put her into this misery of disappointment. And then she would wonder suddenly whether she had been looking too fixedly at the door, whether they had noticed her. And she would start and look about her self-consciously, blushing a little, her eyes hot and suspicious. I can see her in all these moods. It was her babyhood that was leaving her at last. She was never to be quite so spontaneously gay again, never quite so careless, so audacious, so casual, so happy. In Russia the awkward age is very short, very dramatic, often enough very tragic. Nina was as helpless as the rest of the world." At any rate, upon this Sunday, she was sure of her afternoon. Her eyes were wild with excitement. Anyone who looked at her closely must have noticed her strangeness, but they were all discussing the events of the last two days. There were a thousand stories, nearly all of them false, and a few true facts. No one, in reality, knew anything except that there had been some demonstrations, a little shooting, and a number of excited speeches. The town on that lovely winter morning seemed absolutely quiet. 
Somewhere about midday, Semyonov came in, and without thinking about it, Nina suddenly found herself sitting in the window talking to him. This conversation, which was in its results to have an important influence on her whole life, continued the development which that eventful Sunday was to effect in her. Its importance lay very largely in the fact that her uncle had never spoken to her seriously like a grown-up woman before. Semyonov was, of course, quite clever enough to realize the change which was transforming her, and he seized it at once for his own advantage. She, on her side, had always, ever since she could remember, been intrigued by him. She told me once that almost her earliest memory was being lifted into the air by her uncle, and feeling the thick solid strength of his grasp, so that she was like a feather in the air, poised on one of his stubborn fingers. When he kissed her, each hair of his beard seemed like a pale taut wire. So stiff and resolute was it. Her uncle Ivan was a flabby, effeminate creature in comparison. Then, as she had grown older, she had realized that he was a dangerous man, dangerous to women, who loved and feared and hated him. Vera said that he had great power over them, and made them miserable, and that he was, therefore, a bad, wicked man. But this only served to make him, in Nina's eyes, the more a romantic figure. However, he had never treated her in the least seriously, had tossed her in the air spiritually, just as he had done physically when she was a baby, had given her chocolates, taken her once or twice to the cinema, laughed at her, and she felt deeply despised her. Then came the war, and he had gone to the front, and she had almost forgotten him. Then came the romantic story of his being deeply in love with a nurse who had been killed, that he was heartbroken and inconsolable, and a changed man. Was it wonderful that on his return to Petrograd she should feel again that old Byronic, every Russian is still brought up on Byron, romance? She did not like him, but, well, Vera was a staid, old-fashioned thing. Perhaps they all misjudged him. Perhaps he really needed comfort and consolation. He certainly seemed kinder than he used to be. But until today he had never talked to her seriously. How her heart leapt into her throat when he began, at once, in his quiet, soft voice. Well, Nina, dear, tell me all about it. I know, so you needn't be frightened. I know, and I understand. She flung a terrified glance around her, but Uncle Ivan was reading the paper at the other end of the room. Her brother-in-law was cutting up little pieces of wood in his workshop, and Vera was in the kitchen. "'What do you mean?' she said in a whisper. "'I don't understand.' "'Yes, you do,' he answered, smiling at her. "'You know, Nina, you're in love with the Englishman, and have been for a long time. Well, why not?' Don't be so frightened about it. It is quite time that you should be in love with someone, and he's a fine, strong young man, not overblessed with brains, but you can supply that part of it. No, I think it's a very good match. I like it. Believe me, I'm your friend, Nina. He put his hand on hers. He looked so kind, she told me afterwards, that she felt as though she had never known him before. Her eyes were filled with tears. So overwhelming a relief was it to find someone at last who sympathized and understood and wanted her to succeed. 
I remember that she was wearing that day a thin black velvet necklet with a very small diamond in front of it. She had been given it by Uncle Ivan on her last birthday, and instead of making her look grown up, it gave her a ridiculously childish appearance, as though she had stolen into Vera's bedroom and dressed up in her things. Then, with her fair tousled hair and large blue eyes, open as a rule with a startled expression, as though she had only just awakened into an astonishingly exciting world, she was altogether as unprotected and as guileless and as honest as any human being alive. I don't know whether Semyonov felt her innocence and youth. I expect he considered very little beside the plans that he had then in view and innocence had never been very interesting to him. He spoke to her just as a kind, wise, thoughtful uncle ought to speak to a niece caught up into her first love affair. From the moment of that half-hour's conversation in the window, Nina adored him, and believed every word that came from his mouth. "'You see, Nina, dear,' he went on, "'I've not spoken to you before because you neither liked me nor trusted me.' "'Quite rightly you listened to what others said about me.' "'Oh, no,' interrupted Nina. "'I never listened to anybody.' "'Well, then,' said Semyonov, "'we'll say that you were very naturally influenced by them. "'And quite right, perfectly right. "'You were only a girl then. "'You are a woman now. "'I had nothing to say to you then. "'Now I can help you, give you a little advice, perhaps.' "'I don't know what Nina replied. "'She was breathlessly pleased and excited.' "'What I want,' he went on, "'is the happiness of you all. "'I was sorry when I came back "'to find that Nicholas and Vera "'weren't such friends as they used to be. "'I don't mean that there's anything wrong at all, "'but they must be brought closer together, "'and that's what you and I, "'who know them and love them, can do.' "'Yes, yes,' said Nina eagerly. Semyonov then explained "'that the thing that really was, "'it seemed to him, "'keeping them apart was Nicholas's inventions.' Of course, Vera had long ago seen that these inventions were never going to come to anything, that they were simply wasting Nicholas's time when he might, by taking an honest clerkship or something of the kind, be maintaining the whole household, and the very thought of him sitting in his workshop irritated her. The thing to do, Semyonov explained, was to laugh Nicholas out of his inventions, to show him that it was selfish nonsense his pursuing them to persuade him to make an honest living. "'But I thought,' said Nina, "'you approved of them. I heard you only the other day, telling him that it was a good idea, and that he must go on.' "'Ah,' said Semyonov, "'that was my weakness, I'm afraid. I couldn't bear to disappoint him. But it was wrong of me, and I knew it at the time.' Now Nina had always rather admired her brother-in-law's inventions. She had thought it very clever of him to think of such things.' and she had wondered why other people did not applaud him more. Now, suddenly, she saw that it was very selfish of him to go on with these things, when they had never brought in a penny, and Vera had to do all the drudgery. She was suddenly indignant with him. In how clear a light her uncle placed things. "'One thing to do,' said Semyonov, "'is to laugh at him about them. Not very much, not unkindly, but enough to make him see the folly of it. "'I think he does see that already, poor Nicholas,' said Nina, with wisdom beyond her years. "'To bring Nicholas and Vera together,' said Semyonov, "'that's what we have to do, you and I. 
and believe me dear nina i on my side will do all i can to help you we are friends aren't we not only uncle and niece yes said nina breathlessly that was all that there was to the conversation but it was quite enough to make nina feel as though she had already won her heart's desire if any one as clever as her uncle believed in this then it must be true it had not been only her own silly imagination lawrence cared for her her uncle had seen it otherwise he would never have encouraged her lawrence cared for her suddenly in the happy spontaneity of the moment she did what she very seldom did bent forward and kissed him she told me afterwards that that kiss seemed to displease him he got up and walked away End of Part 2, Chapter 6